0: The title for my talk is Proofs for God's Existence, Aquinas, on Reason, Uncertainty, and Faith. When St. Thomas Aquinas proves that God exists, he doesn't think it's a big deal. To him, the proof is intellectually easy, historically uncontroversial, and even something of a compromise. It was a plain matter of empirical fact for him that the existence of God can be and has been proven. And he found the best of philosophy in the Greek tradition to chart a middle path between treating God's existence as perfectly self-evident or conceptually inescapable, and so not in need of proof, and regarding it as something entirely exceeding human reason, and so not even capable of proof. Aquinas had an ambitious project of natural theology in which there were highly significant moves for reason to make in pursuing a greater share of knowledge of God, a project with crucial space for rational uncertainty about the divine nature. But proving the existence of God was for him a simple entry-level exercise. By contrast, today many people assume that proving the existence of God is a daring, difficult, and elusive challenge, an intellectual moonshot, which, if possible to accomplish, would plant an important flag for the cause of religious apologetics. To many moderns, the only thing we know about whether God's existence can be proven is that we can argue about it endlessly, as Hume suggests in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which means that we can't really prove God exists, or even if we could, in principle, it wouldn't matter because any alleged proof, even if formally valid, would be subject to persistent unanswerable objections. To assess these two perspectives, we must try to understand them each from the inside and see if we can trace our way from the more familiar to the less familiar. As an entry into Aquinas' presumably less familiar perspective, my lecture will begin by explaining the easiest part of that perspective. I will prove the existence of God. Second, I will reflect on how limited the proof is. Aquinas didn't think it was a big deal, and when you see that the argument is successful, you too are likely to find it rather underwhelming. Third, and the longest section of the lecture, I will reflect on the role of the proof in Aquinas' theological project. The proof, though modest in its own right, has huge implications not only for how we conceive of God, but for how we conceive of human reason, its relation to Christian faith, and their role in the practical challenge of managing belief formation. What creates the distance between Aquinas' perspective and a more skeptical modern one is not so much the proof itself, which is not hard to understand, but the accompanying conceptions of the powers Purposes and pragmatics of human cognition, which conceptions may seem unfamiliar, but they are not wholly lost and are possible with some effort to entertain again. Fourthly and finally, then, I will reflect on the ways in which Aquinas is engaged in managing epistemic risk in light of the limitations of human reason. In this sense, he invites comparison with a modern skeptic, David Hume whose dialogues are often treated as a foundational text in the philosophy of religion. Hume, like Aquinas, wants to be attuned to the challenges and limits of theological knowledge and tries to give the impression of considering a range of types of proof for the existence of God. And yet, Hume does not, and could not, consider any of Aquinas' arguments from the Aristotelian tradition. Noticing Hume's careful omission sheds some light on the assumptions that his skeptical empiricism makes about nature, human cognition, and religious faith, assumptions which are not a priori in any way superior to, neither more rational nor more practical than, Aquinas's very different Aristotelian approach to theological knowledge. So part one, the proof. Let's get this out of the way and prove God's existence. As I said, it's very easy and the logic is simple. Change implies an original source. Aquinas distills the logic into three premises, which together clearly entail a conclusion. First premise, some things are undergoing change. As Aquinas puts it, in the world, some things are in motion. Second premise, whatever is undergoing change must be caused to change by something else, Again, in Aquinas' words, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another. Third premise, what is causing change may itself be undergoing change, implying a chain of things causing and undergoing change, but such a chain of changing changers cannot go back indefinitely. Again, in Aquinas' words, if that by which it is put in motion be itself put in motion, then this also must be put in motion by another and that by another, but this cannot go on to infinity. Conclusion, there must be some first cause of change that is not undergoing any change. In Aquinas' words, therefore it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other. Let me briefly defend each premise in case any of these claims, in any other context totally uncontroversial, seem like a weak point by which to escape the conclusion. Defense of the first premise. All we need is something existing in motion. Obviously, things move. We only need one thing, and it's hard to think of any physical thing that isn't on some time scale subject to motion. To have a specific example, Aquinas names the sun, probably because we also know that the sun is a cause of many other things and seems so powerful as to be worshiped as divine in some cultures. And even the sun, quasi-divine as it is, moves. But you might say from a more scientific cosmology, it doesn't move, it only appears to move because of the motion of the earth. It doesn't matter. For this premise, we only need something to move. Defense of the second premise. Things don't cause themselves to change. The car doesn't start itself. Candy bars don't eat themselves. Billiard balls don't start bumping into each other on their own. This is common sense, and in no aspect of daily life do we accept the idea of anything causing itself to change. The apparent exceptions prove the rule. When an animal moves, one part of its body is pushing other parts of the body forward. When a self-driving car moves, some components, programmed by a human being, are directing other components. Another apparent exception, Newton's law of inertia, says that things remain in motion without something moving them. But this is actually a special case of the premise. Something can't change its state, whether it's in motion or at rest, unless acted upon by an outside force, moved by another. Things don't change themselves. This is common sense, but Aquinas, following Aristotle, gives a simple argument to show why it must be true. Insofar as something is moving, it is not yet in some way that it is in the process of coming to be. It has a potency which has not yet fully received an actualization. Insofar as something is capable of causing motion, it must already possess an actuality which it is communicating to the thing it is moving. As a billiard ball communicates its momentum to another billiard ball, or the sun communicates its heat to the warming earth. So to be in motion is to be in potency, which is to say not being already actual, while to be causing motion is to be actual and sharing that actuality, and something can't both not yet be and already be actual in the same respect at the same time. So the no-self-movers premise is a simple application of the principle of non-contradiction. Defense of the third premise. In a chain of movers and things moved, the intermediate movers are instrumental. They are passing on an actuality that has been received from elsewhere. As the dominoes fall, they are passing on the force from the very first domino to fall. Even if it were possible to have an infinite chain of dominoes, if some of the dominoes are falling, there must have been an initial push, not infinitely far back, that got them started. Or for another example, to recharge my car battery, I may use another battery, which in turn was charged from another battery, but then the middle battery is only passing on energy received from the prior one. This could go back quite a long time, but originally there must be a source of energy. Not only physical impossibility, but logical impossibility prevents me from trying to start my car by hooking it up by hooking up its dead battery to an infinite chain of other dead batteries. There must be a source of energy, and it can't be infinitely far back, whatever that means, or the energy would never get successfully passed into my car battery. Each premise is true, then, and the conclusion logically follows from it. There must be some original cause of motion which is not itself in motion. The motion of anything at all, implies the existence of an unmoved mover, something that is a source of change in other things, but is itself not undergoing any change whatsoever. So now part two, limitations of the proof. Let's reflect on what this proof does and doesn't show. Especially if you are able to follow the reasoning and see that the argument is successful, you are likely to find it rather disappointing. What has it proven the existence of? Something that causes change which does not itself change. That in itself might not be exactly what most people have in mind when they ask whether God exists. Most people, I think, imagine that a proof for the existence of God will prove the existence of some all-powerful spiritual being, something perfectly good and wise, something deserving of worship, something or rather someone who rules as worthy lord of the universe and to whom we have a duty to submit. Is the unmoved mover such a god? It doesn't sound so. On the basis of this proof, we do not know if the unmoved mover is an immaterial or a physical being. We don't know if it is good or wise. We don't know if there is only one such being or perhaps more than one. On the basis of the demonstration itself, we know almost nothing about this god except... That is the first in a chain of cause and effect, something that produces motion in other things without itself undergoing any change. It is not difficult to imagine someone accepting the reasoning of the proof and yet remain a sincere atheist in the sense of assuming that this first thing, the unmoved mover, whatever it is, could be the universe itself or some original physical event, the Big Bang, or even arguing that perhaps there are multiple such unmoved movers. Why do we even say that a demonstration of a prime mover is a proof of God's existence? The proof itself doesn't even mention God. God does not appear in the premises, and so, of course, God is also not in the conclusion. Where is the concept of God in the proof? It is a demonstration from effects to a cause, and what it proves the existence of is this unmoved mover. After stating his conclusion... Aquinas seems to sneak in reference to God by a kind of appended assertion. There is an unmoved mover, he says, and this everyone understands to be God. That we conceive of the unmoved mover as God is not even formally part of the argument, but an interpretive appendix extrinsic to the logic of the demonstration. We might ask then, in what sense does everyone understand this is God? What does Aquinas even mean when he says that everyone understands the unmoved mover whose existence he's proven is divine? Apparently, this is a kind of empirical observation about a community of language users. We have to take him at his word that one of the things this community means by God is the first cause in a chain of cause and effect. We can accept that. But obviously, most people mean a lot more by God than that, as we have seen. And also, as we have seen, this proof is absolutely silent on whether the God whose existence it establishes has those other features that believers in God or even unbelievers in God would normally associate with God. You might think that some of these other features could be addressed by Aquinas' other proofs. I have been talking about his first, the simplest, and easiest of Aquinas's five ways, and Aquinas offers four other distinct arguments for the existence of God in the Summa Theologiae. In a parallel section of the Summa Contra Gentiles, he gives three arguments for the existence of God, but he gives most attention by far to this same first argument from motion. All of Aquinas' arguments follow the same general inference, reasoning back from some known effect to some primary cause. So depending on the kind of effect and the relevant mode of causality, each proof establishes the existence of a distinctive kind of cause, and each ends with the claim, and this we call God. So to briefly summarize the other proofs, in the second way, Aquinas proves the existence of a first efficient cause, an agent that is responsible for the existence of everything else. In the third way, he proves the existence of a source of necessity. These could both be considered variations on the first way, the second and third ways, reaching back to God as the primary agent, and these arguments don't appear separately in the Summa Contra Gentiles. But the other two arguments, which do appear in the Summa Contra Gentiles, conclude to a different sort of first cause. Aquinas' fourth way proves the existence of a highest paradigm, something most true, beautiful, good, in other words, what we might, might call a first formal or exemplar cause. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, this is the second of the two proofs that Aquinas attributes to Aristotle. And the fifth way proves the existence of a source of order, implying, that intelligence, uh, implying intelligence and a final cause or purpose. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, this argument is attributed to Damascene and Averroes, though it too could be attributed to Aristotle. Taken together then, the set of proofs seems to convey something more like what we expect of a proof of God's existence, but note that each proof is considered separately conclusive. Each one proves the existence of something that we call God, and it would take further argument to establish that there is only one of each and that each one is identical with the other, that the first agent is ultimate goodness and intelligent governor of the universe. So each proof clearly establishes its conclusion, but the conclusion for each is only the existence of some mode of primary cause. The same is true even if we consider a sixth proof, often considered the most challenging, from Aquinas' metaphysical treatise On Being and Essence. The logic here, as for the others, moves from observed effects to a cause in this case, the observed effect being the distinction of everything from its being, which implies some first being which has no such distinction, a being in which what it is and its existence are one and the same. Like Aquinas's other arguments, this too could be traced to Aristotle. It is presumably a variation on an argument from Book 12 of the Metaphysics for the existence of a pure actuality. This idea of a a, a purely simple being is a potent notion, and philosophers may get significant mileage reflecting on the uniqueness of pure actuality, of divine simplicity, or unqualified being. But in and of itself, proving the existence of something in which being and essence are not really distinct is, like the other proofs, a fairly straightforward matter. And we also have to admit that, perhaps apart from those who have meditated on God's self-revelation to Moses, in the burning bush, this is not what, in common discourse, most people have in mind when they use the word God. So part three, the context and purpose of the proofs. Aquinas' proofs of God's existence can only be properly appreciated in terms of the role of the proofs in his larger theological project. And this project reveals important features of Aquinas' understanding of how and in what way knowledge can fulfill us as rational creatures. Aquinas considers proofs for God's existence in strictly philosophical works. He has a work called On Being and Essence, which I've mentioned, and he considers these proofs also in his commentaries on Aristotle's physics and metaphysics. But as we have seen, his most famous arguments are situated near the beginning of ambitious works of the sacred science, explicitly Christian theological works. The five ways are near the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, the third article of the second question of the first part, and the parallel treatment, giving those three arguments I mentioned, is in the 13th chapter of the first part of the earlier Summa Contra Gentiles. Scholars argue over the significance of the differences between the two theological sumae, but both works start by taking for granted a role for natural reason in seeking a real but limited knowledge of God. Specifically, Christian theology, or sacred wisdom, is introduced as a necessary complement to the philosophical source of knowledge. So, the summa contra gentiles speaks of a two-fold mode of truth, with some truths demonstrable by reason and other truths surpassing reason and only available to us by faith in divine revelation. Still, reason plays a role even in defense of distinctively Christian truths knowable only by faith. In addition to proving what is within reason's grasp, confidence in the unity of truth means that reason can, in principle, defend against putatively rational objections what can only be grasped by faith. So here is Aquinas in the eighth chapter of the Summa Contra Gentiles describing how reason can play a role helping our limited minds accept truths of faith precisely because we trust that all things are related to God as effects to first cause. So here's a long quote from the Summa Contra Gentiles. Sensible things, he says from which the human reason takes the origin of its knowledge, retain within themselves some sort of trace of a likeness to God. This is so imperfect, however, that it is absolutely inadequate to manifest the substance of God. For effects bear within themselves in their own way the likeness of their causes, since an agent produces its like. Yet an effect does not always reach to the full likeness of its cause. Now, the human reason is related to the knowledge of the truth of faith, a truth which can be most evident only to those who see the divine substance, in such a way that it can gather certain likenesses of it, which are yet not sufficient so that the truth of faith may be comprehended as being understood demonstratively or through itself. Yet, he continues, it is useful for the human reason to exercise itself in such arguments however weak they may be provided only that there be present no presumption to comprehend or to demonstrate for to be able to see something of the loftiest realities however thin and weak of sight weak the sight may be is as our previous remarks indicate a cause of the greatest joy so thus the summa contra gentiles introduces christian theology as a fulfillment of philosophical pursuit of wisdom. In the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas sharpens the question even more to ask as the very first point of inquiry, whether there is any need for a science of wisdom beyond philosophy. In other words, right from the start, Aquinas seeks to locate Christian theology or sacred doctrine as a science, a discipline of knowledge relative to and perfective of the already theological, but inherently limited, Pagan philosophical science. Here is what he says in the body of that first article. It was necessary for man's salvation that there should be a teaching revealed by God beyond the philosophical disciplines which are investigated by human reason. First, indeed, because man is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of reason, and he quotes from Isaiah. But the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end. Hence, it was necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known to him by divine revelation. Even as regards those truths about God which human reason could have discovered, he continues, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation because the truth about God, such as reason could discover, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. Whereas man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends upon the knowledge of this truth. Therefore, in order that the salvation of man might be brought about more fitly and more securely, it was necessary that they should be taught divine truths by divine revelation. It was therefore necessary that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation. That's how Aquinas begins to explain the need for theology perfecting philosophy. So the whole point of theology is to use God's help to get human beings to where they are designed by God to go, namely into deeper knowledge of God than unaided human nature can achieve. While we typically think of this in terms of our achieving knowledge, Aquinas highlights the role of God himself helping us to manage the challenge of avoiding error. We could think of his project as a kind of divine epistemic risk management. What is clear in both texts is that for Aquinas, Christian faith is not an alternative to knowledge, but a fulfillment of it. Faith offers a kind of knowledge that must be understood in relation to, although it cannot be reduced to, philosophical knowledge, and which is fully rational, insofar as rejecting it would ensure that we remain unable to achieve the end, knowledge of God, that even pagan philosophical wisdom acknowledges. Moreover, because philosophy is both difficult and prone to error, even at its best, it is limited in what it can achieve. It is fitting not only that it be completed by Christian theology, but that most people, if they are going to know even part of what they need to know, will know it not thanks to their reason exercised in philosophy, but through faith. Just on the question of God's existence, for for instance, although a philosopher can easily prove it, as we did earlier, most people don't need any such philosophical proof. They believe on the basis of God revealing himself by some other means. When people today hear about faith, they might think of something personal, some non-intellectual convictions, only arbitrarily related to what is discoverable by the canons of rationality. So it is worth making explicit that for Aquinas, faith and reason are both modes of intellectual cognition. Both faith and reason are inherently rational, seeking the good of reason, namely truth. Considering cognition as a mode of grasping reality, both faith and reason presume that reality has an intrinsic intelligibility to which our mind is naturally but imperfectly adapted. Both faith and reason are also both inherently social. Philosophical argument and the articulation of faith are for humans not the activities of abstracted angelic minds, but of embodied personal beings. Human knowing, through both reason and faith, is dialectical and relational. We develop arguments in conversation with others. We receive faith through the testimony of others. Moreover, both faith and reason are, for Aquinas, inherently theological. Philosophy is oriented to the whole of reality and its causes, all ultimately deriving from the ultimate cause of causes, God. This is the root of the Thomistic conviction in the harmony of faith and reason. Not that they are merely compatible because they have different domains, but that they cannot conflict because they are both concerned with the same ultimate truth of reality. Here's Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles. This is chapter seven of the first book. That which is introduced into the soul of the student by the teacher is contained in the knowledge of the teacher. Unless his teaching is fictitious, which it is improper to say, God. Now the knowledge of the principles that are known to us naturally has been implanted in us by God. So natural reason, the principles that we know by natural reason, come from God. For God is the author of our nature. These principles, therefore, are also contained by the divine wisdom. Hence, whatever is opposed to them is opposed to the divine wisdom and therefore cannot come from God. That which we hold by faith as divinely revealed, therefore, cannot be contrary to our natural knowledge. So finally, this means that both faith and reason have a practical role in human life. They fulfill us as rational beings. Aristotle's metaphysics begins by noting that all men by nature desire to know. This is an anthropological assertion with practical implications explored by Aristotle at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, where human happiness is described as contemplation. Knowledge of God is not an academic exercise, but an existential calling, a promise of fulfillment, communing with the divine through our own intellectual nature. For Aquinas, in its purest form, it describes Christian blessedness, seeing God face to face in heaven. In this context, in which faith and reason are the powers that lead us to fulfillment in God, what good are reason's proofs of God's existence? They are not necessary for our salvation, as we can believe in God without them, and even those who are privileged to follow the rational demonstration are not necessarily made better or closer to God by them. So what is their benefit, and why do they appear so early in Aquinas' theological works? First, the proofs do establish, with certainty, the existence of something. Contrary to those who say that God's existence is self-evident and so trivially true, and those who say it can't be proven at all, Aquinas does believe that knowledge of God's existence can be a rational achievement. Second, they offer a basis for reflecting on God's nature. I've mentioned the question of his immateriality and his simplicity, And the further work of natural theology reflecting on what it means to be an unmoved mover or a paradigm uh, of, of all goodness disciplines our intellects and purifies our concepts so that they are better able to understand God. Third, the proofs help make us aware of the limits of our knowledge and the need for faith. Even at its most extensive, natural theology cannot exhaust God's nature and cannot even make known to us what we need to know for our salvation. In one sense, the further you get along in natural theology, the more you realize how little it helps you. Finally, in their emphasis on God as cause, the proofs serve as a strong reminder of our contingency, our dependence, how our lives and everything in creation is a gift. If philosophically, the proofs can inspire wonder, practically, they inspire humility gratitude, and piety. So, the fourth section, Hume's project. I have described Aquinas' proofs for the existence of God as part of a project of disciplining reason, managing epistemic risk, and ordering the soul pragmatically through the virtue of piety. A similar description could be offered of the much different project of David Hume, in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, a work apparently designed to leave no place for proofs for the existence of God and widely regarded as undermining the Thomistic vision of reason's capacity for theological knowledge. Hume seems to construct his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion so that different voices representing traditional theology are given a chance to defend arguments against some skeptical critique. In the end, the arguments don't withstand those critiques, and it seems Hume intended the dialogues to give victory to the skeptic. And yet the two main arguments, one from a character named Cleanthes in Part 2 and one from Demia in Part 9, are carefully designed by Hume not to represent the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. Cleanthes offers an argument from design, His reasoning is that the world has a complexity and organization that resembles that of a machine. And he argues by analogy that it must be related to an intelligent maker as a machine is related to an intelligent builder. He does not invoke a a general principle that order implies intelligence. Instead, he insists that the reasoning is by analogy. The similarities between nature and a machine suggest that there should be some similarity between the cause of nature and human intelligence. Cleanthes, like all the characters in Hume's dialogues, is an empiricist and so relies ultimately on experience as the source of knowledge. Superficially, Cleanthes' argument might remind us of Aquinas' fifth way, the argument from design, but Aquinas' reasoning is very different from Cleanthes'. For Aquinas, there is a general truth of causality. Whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. That's Aquinas' principle. Aquinas does not rely on an analogy between an arrow and the world from which to advance a further analogy between the archer and God. Instead, he invokes a principle that intelligence is the power to order and direct things to an end, and then illustrates it with an example, the archer shooting the arrow. Cleanthe's analogy, relying on experience, is at best a probabilistic inference. Aquinas' reasoning is a matter of intellectual certainty based on the nature of causality. The other main argument for God's existence that Hume formulates is through the more rationalist character, Demia. It involves a reductio argument about an infinite chain of causes, and some commentators describe it as a version of the cosmological argument, or an argument for a first cause. It appears to have similarities to Aquinas' second way, a proof of a first efficient cause, or his third way, a proof of a being existing by necessity. But the similarity is superficial. Demia insists on characterizing his argument as a priori, that is, relying only on concepts, relations of ideas, without any empirical element or appeals to matters of fact. His goal is to show that we must believe in a necessarily existent being because it would be a contradiction of reason, not of observable phenomena, to suppose that God doesn't exist. In other words, what Demia intends is less a cosmological argument than what we now call an ontological argument or a claim that God's existence is self-evident. In other words, Demia's argument is one of the views with with, with which Aquinas starts by repudiating. As Hume has constructed the dialogues, it is easy for both of the arguments, the one by Cleanthes and the other by Demia, to be criticized and shown to be inconclusive. To an uninformed reader, it might appear that natural theology has thus been defeated. But to a more informed reader, it can't help but be noticed that the most important tradition of natural theology, the Aristotelian proofs integrated by Aquinas into Christian theology, are missing. What can be inferred from this? Hume had to exclude Thomistic reasoning from the dialogues, not only because the skeptical critiques that he used against the arguments he did consider would not work against Thomistic reasoning, but because the Thomistic reasoning relies on conceptions of causality that Hume would not even entertain. In fact, Hume's dialogues can be read as an attempt to reposition piety as something other than a virtue of acknowledging metaphysical dependence, as Aquinas described it, following Cicero. As we have seen, the Thomistic perspective on theological knowledge depends on several things, especially a notion of causality that Hume could not accept. Aquinas's perspective depends on a conception of human nature a notion of duty arising from our nature and a confidence in God as the origin of our nature and the ultimate object of our duty. Hume's skepticism manifests itself in the dialogues then, not as a critique of Thomistic natural theology, but as a systematic exclusion. It cannot be considered, even though Aquinas in his own way manifests an alternative kind of skepticism, a cognitive humility or epistemic risk management precisely because of his embrace of the things Hume rejected, the intelligibility of causality, including the natures, duties, and ends of created things. And so, to my conclusion, entitled The Miracle of Faith. That Hume's response to the Aristotelian tradition is not critique but avoidance is perhaps most manifest in his treatment of miracles. It is a great irony that Hume, otherwise never to be outdone when it comes to skepticism of causes and natures, also made arguments against miracles as impossible and irrational because they were contrary to the natural course of events. Indeed, the philosopher most famous for arguing that we can know nothing about causality in nature becomes rather confident in the law-like behavior of nature when arguing against miracles. Is this simply the inconsistency of an atheist denying teleology in nature but also denying the possibility of special divine action? I don't think so. The reason Hume could not accept an account of miracles is that if things don't have natures as effects of a first cause, then neither are they such as to be subject to extraordinary action by their first cause. Hume doesn't have an account of why things would behave regularly. That is literally an irrational assumption for him. So the idea of natures governed by an eternal law is something he is skeptical of. But for the same reason, he cannot countenance an explanation according to which what constitutes the distinctive natures of things could by special action allow exceptions to the regular activities of those natures. Hume, in other words, misses that for those who believe in them, Miracles manifest God acting in an exceptional way in a world that he is always acting in anyway. Hume actually gets the logic of miracles wrong, as if there is supposed to be some evidence that God did something before one believes in a miracle, rather than the miracle itself being extraordinary evidence that God, who is always acting, has acted here and now. Accordingly, Hume misses that people believing in miracles is itself a miracle. That is, they are made aware, people believing in miracles are made aware of something not thanks to their own natural powers, but thanks to a supernatural gift, the grace of God. Here is Aquinas on faith as a miracle, describing the testimony of the early Christians. When these arguments were examined through the efficacy of the above mentioned proof and not the violent assault of arms or the promise of pleasure, And what is most wonderful of all, he says, in the midst of the tyranny of the persecutors, an innumerable throng of people, both simple and most learned, flocked to the Christian faith. In this faith, there are truths preached that surpass every human intellect. The pleasures of the flesh are curbed. It is taught that the things of the world should be spurned. Now for the minds of mortal men to assent to these things is the greatest of miracles just as it is a manifest work of divine inspiration that spurning visible things, men should seek only what is invisible. That's from chapter six of the first part of the Summa Contra Gentiles. In other words, although reason can prove the existence of God, a greater testimony to the existence of God is the fact that so many people believe in God and in the specific God of Christian revelation without the work of such proofs at all. The conversion of believers to faith is itself evidence of the truth of faith, as faith could only make sense as an effect of a cause fit to produce it. Here's Aquinas again from the same chapter. This wonderful conversion of the world to the Christian faith is the clearest witness of the signs given in the past, so that it is not necessary that they should be further repeated since they appear most clearly in their effect for it would be truly more wonderful than all signs if the world had been led by simple and humble men to believe such lofty truths, to accomplish such difficult actions, and to have such high hopes. So if you are called to the philosophical science, by all means explore Aquinas' proofs for the existence of God and the rest of his natural theology, but know that they only confirm by rational demonstration What is made evident every day, and especially in the miracle of believing Christians, that our lives and powers and paths as rational beings are gifts, and that we are indebted for our origin, our pattern, and our purpose to a great God who surpasses reason. Thank you very much.